0: Good morning. Happy Memorial Day weekend to you all with Memorial Day being a day when our nation takes time to remember those who gave their lives in active military service so that we might have freedom to gather in this way, a freedom many Christians across the world do not enjoy in this manner. And so uh, we remember that, and I pray that as you engage in various activities, that you will take time to remember those who gave their life for our freedom. The title of the sermon today is Lead Us Not Into Temptation. Lead Us Not Into Temptation. Memorial Day is a day of remembering, and most of the problems in our life, most of them are caused by a failure to Remember? by a failure to remember. In the moment of temptation, when it strikes, oftentimes remembering will be the key to success and victory or succumbing to temptation and yielding or failure. Today's passage, we will see Jesus, our champion, engaged in mortal combat, so to speak, with the devil. And I say that not as hyperbole. I literally mean life and death we're hanging in the balance in Matthew chapter 4 now we read it in 11 verses 11 short brief Verses, But please understand, as this is unfolding in real time for our Lord Jesus, these temptations or tests are powerful allurements to compromise his obedience to God, to ensnare the Son of God. And so this is going to be highly instructive for us this morning. If you're just joining us, we are in Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew. We see the majesty of Jesus put on display in a very unique way in Matthew's Gospel. Remember the context, so we're in chapter 4. Matthew, since chapter 1, has presented Jesus as the true Son of David, an inheritor of the throne of God, as the Savior of God's people. Chapter 1, he will save his people from their sins, as the Messiah or the Anointed One on on whom the Spirit of God rests. We saw that in chapter 3. We also have seen Matthew is portraying Jesus as, and this is important, recapitulating the story of Israel. He is following in his life the footsteps of the nation of Israel as God's true Son. Now, this has significant implications for how you understand who the people of God are today, and how we understand the function of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, and then how we relate to them in the New Testament. There are just massive implications for this reality of what Jesus is doing, is walking through the steps of the nation of Israel and fulfilling, really fulfilling everything that they were designed to be. We'll get more into that as we get into Matthew's narrative. Most immediately, we just saw in chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, and it ended with that climactic scene, the heavens cracked open, the Spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove, and that voice from heaven thundered, behold, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And now that obedience in chapter 4, it's unfortunate that the distinction comes here of chapter break, but now that obedience is put to the test in chapter 4. So let's pray. We'll get into it. Father in heaven, instruct us by your word. Lead us by your spirit. Convict us of sin and unrighteousness. Fill us with your power so that we too may escape the snares of the devil, that we would not yield to temptation. But, Father, when we do, we thank you that you have provided Jesus, a merciful and faithful high priest who is tempted in every way as we are yet without sin. May this cause our hearts to soar this morning with joy as we see our champion fight and win. And so, Lord, would you nourish our souls by your victory we also pray for uh, the church as it is gathered all across the islands. We lift up specifically uh, our sister church, our church plant, Wai'ehu Community Church. We pray that you would draw many to faith in Christ in Wai'ehu. We ask that you would bless the ministry of the word there through the pastors and through the members as they all speak the word. One, To another and to all around them. Would you sustain them in this work, we pray? And would you do this everywhere? The gospel is preached across the islands. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. All right, here's the big idea. If you're taking notes, here it is. You ready? Jesus' triumph over temptation, Jesus' triumph over temptation signals him as the only source of life and blessing. Jesus' triumph over temptation signals he is the only source of life and blessing. That's your big idea. Number one, we have warfare in the wilderness. Warfare, that's point number one. Warfare in the wilderness, verses one through four. All right, now Jesus comes out of what we might call a spiritual high or a a mountaintop experience, right? We have these in our lives, don't we? You've probably had a season where you just felt incredibly close to the Lord, that you were just on fire for God, that you could feel and sense, it's almost palpable, His presence in your life, and that was just such a sweet time. This is what Jesus is coming out of. His baptism, the Spirit of God descended on him. It's there. He's been anointed for work of the ministry, publicly displayed, this mountaintop experience. And now Jesus literally is plunged by the Spirit to the wilderness of trial. What we might call a season of barrenness. Really, the wilderness, a place of barrenness. It's worth pausing here. This should point us to a few things, this little detail. Things can be going really, really good in life, spiritually and other ways. And then trial, when it comes, it often comes suddenly and unexpectedly. It doesn't necessarily mean God is displeased with you, per se. Maybe you've ever felt that. You're like, man, God, I was living for you, and I was serving you, and I was doing everything that seemed like I thought that you wanted me to do. Why am I in this situation? Beloved, hear that. If you've ever been there, look to Jesus. This may not necessarily mean God is displeased with you. It may be an expression of his pleasure in you, and it may be one of the means he's using to make you more like Jesus, to put you to the test, so to speak. Often the presence of external trials has no correlation to whether God loves you or is pleased with you. Remember, we just heard the end of chapter three, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Chapter four, verse one, then Jesus was led by that spirit that just descended on him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So let me ask you, Are you in the wilderness this morning? Did you come here this morning, and would you say that you were in a spiritual wasteland, so to speak? Maybe you feel barren, cold, distant. Trial upon trial has come into your life. Perhaps you've been calling out to God repeatedly, and you find he's not answering, or so it seems. Are you in the wilderness this morning? Beloved, hear this. God has a purpose for you in the place you're in. You are not there by accident, and you are not alone. God is not far from you, even if your senses tell you otherwise. God has a purpose for the place he has you. He means to grow you, to test you, to strengthen you. But as we're gonna see for Jesus, it requires great vigilance because there are other forces in the wilderness that have the exact opposite goal in mind. It requires great vigilance. And so, Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. We see the devil called many things in this passage, actually a few titles. The devil comes up most often. He's also called the tempter. So the word devil is a slanderer. He's a slanderer. He's coming to slander God, to slander his promise, to slander the Son of God, if you're the Son of God. He's gonna, we're going to see, as he, he is slandering God in each of these temptations, he's the devil, he's called the tempter, he's called Satan, the proper title for who he is. So we see a little bit about the character of Satan, which will take some time to meditate on his tactics at the end. But Jesus is led, and he has, to our knowledge, this is the first one-to-one encounter of Jesus and Satan. Prior to this, Satan has come through intermediaries, maybe through Herod the Great, through political powers, through political structures, through intermediaries. But now we see a one-to-one clash of Satan, that serpent of old, and Jesus, the Son of God. Satan comes to do the job right, and he comes in person. The text says that Jesus was fasting for how long? Forty days and forty nights. Any accidents there in that number? No, no accidents. Could it have been 39 days, 38 days, 42 days? No, there's no accidents in God's Word. The text says Jesus was fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. How long was Israel in the wilderness? 40 years again Jesus is recapitulating the story of e, of Israel in summary form in his life he just came out of baptism Israel went through the Red Sea and they went into their wilderness wanderings Jesus comes out of baptism and he's led immediately into the wilderness you can read about that 40 years in the book of numbers now i know some of you right now are probably thinking like is it really is that really like the corresponding correlation here in the old testament 40 40 years is that am i just reading into that i'll prove that in a few minutes jesus is recapitulating the life of israel but there's more he's led into the wilderness he's fasting in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights now what is a wilderness think about it it's really the opposite of a garden isn't it it's the opposite of a garden, of a lush garden. It is a, it's what happens to a garden under the curse of sin. It becomes barren, not fruit-bearing. It becomes a wasteland, not lush. So Jesus enters a cursed garden. Who else was in a garden and tempted by Jesus? Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. This is all ringing through in this narrative. This is setting up Jesus as the second Adam, the head of a new people. Adam was the first head. He failed. Jesus is being put forward as a second head of a people. Will he succeed? Will he pass? That's what's at stake in this passage. So, just as Adam was in the first garden, in a lush garden, when the serpent came, Jesus now has the deck stacked against him, actually. He is in a worse Place than the first Adam. Adam had everything, a garden. He had all these things. There was no operative nature of sin present. Jesus enters the second, the second Adam enters a barren garden, and the tempter comes again at the end, Matthew says, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, when Jesus was likely hungry and arguably one of his most vulnerable times this entire time. He's hungry, he's weak, his flesh is weak and he is vulnerable. Beloved, Satan loves to come on the heels of long seasons of trial. He loves to come when you're vulnerable. He is ruthless. He doesn't wait for you to feel strong when you're vigilant and watchful. No, he waits for when you feel weak. When you have fought trial after trial after trial, and you've gone round after round after round, and you've fended off successfully uh, many other temptations, but then you start to feel tired, worn out, exhausted. You start to wonder, when are the trials going to end? Are they going to end? And right then, Satan comes and he throws everything he's got he throws everything he's got at you. And so here's our champion, fasting 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry, he's feeling the weakness of his flesh, and Satan comes with the first test in verse 3. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Satan's taunting him, if you are the Son of God. Now that could be a Uh, a genuine, challenging his identity, but it's probably more like, since you are the son, since you are the son, after all, you're hungry, go ahead, turn the stones to bread. I mean, John the Baptist, after all, your prophet, your forerunner, just said that God is able to turn stones into children of Abraham. After all, God can do that. If you're his son, surely, surely you can turn stones into bread. not asking you to make a person. Just just turn it into bread if you're the son. Jesus responds with a quote from the scriptures. Isn't this incredible? Jesus responds with a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3. Jesus says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone alone. Now, here's where I'm going to really cement part of my argument for that Jesus is recapitulating is the, the wilderness wanderings of Israel, because if you look at the context of Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, which is where all of the quotes of Jesus come from, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, no coincidence there. If you read that context, the whole thing is about Israel's wilderness wanderings, Moses is recalling Israel's wandering through the wilderness, and now here's Jesus in the wilderness, tempted and tested by Satan, quoting from that section and says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the Father. And if you remember, if you recall Deuteronomy, sorry, Numbers, the book of Numbers, uh, there are ten tests. The people of God are testing God constantly. They're complaining. They're failing their trials in the wilderness, And here's Jesus, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's worth an entire sermon of meditation, actually. We could do an entire sermon on each one of these responses very easily. We don't have time for that today. I want you to see what's at stake here. Is is Satan is tempting Jesus with the exact same temptation, the exact snare he used with Eve and Adam? Remember it? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Both of these are concerned with food and what it represents. Now Satan taunts the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now what's going on here? Satan in the garden, the first garden, he got Eve to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the provision of God. Did God actually say not to eat of any tree in the garden, Eve? He's doubting. He's sowing doubt on God's goodness and his provision. Now he uses that same thing with Jesus. If God's good, if God's your father, you're hungry, surely he'll feed you. Surely he would want you to maybe feed yourself. He wouldn't mind. What kind of father wouldn't feed his son after all? This is the essence of that, that temptation. He's doubting the goodness of God. You're hungry, do it. So what's happening is Satan uses physical felt pain of hunger, okay? Think about this. This is a temptation because this is how it plays out in your life too. Satan uses the felt physical pain of hunger to to cast doubt on the actual goodness and faithfulness of God. He uses a physical felt need to cast doubt on the faithfulness, and the goodness of God. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He knows from scripture that if he has God's word, if he has God's spirit, if he has God's presence, then he has enough. And Jesus knows that God and his goodness and his timing will always give him what he needs when he needs it. So let's apply this. Let's just take a little little pause for a moment in the narrative. Let's just apply this, beloved. What physical felt needs exist in your life at the moment? What what do you come here with feeling like, I kind of need this? What physical felt needs exist in your life this moment? Is there anywhere in your life, maybe family, work, relationships, where you're tempted to doubt the goodness and the provision of God or his timing towards you. Or maybe you doubt, man, his timing, what's going on here? Why? I, it's not that I, I don't have this, it's that I want it now or I'm waiting for it and I, I need it now. Is there anything in your life that you're tempted to take matters into your own hands to get? Maybe it's not hunger for you. We seem to have an abundance of food in America for the most part. Maybe it's I'm tired of listening to my boss. Working at this dead-end job. I'm gonna I'm gonna do things my way. Or maybe it's a relationship. You're hungry for relational intimacy. Rather than waiting for God to provide a a godly individual or to to do something like this nature, you take matters into your own hands and and you lay hold of a relationship that God forbids. I want it now. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe it's a health issue, physical felt pain from long-going or ongoing chronic disease. You say, I want God to heal me, but it's just, it's just not happening, and I pray, and I'm in pain all the time. And so, so you choose to take it into your own hands, and, and you take that prescription medication, and you think, well, it's prescribed, it can't be wrong, and I'm going to take, I know it says take it every four hours, but I'm going to take it every two, and then that becomes a lifestyle, and you drown out the pain and everything else with it. The abuse of prescription medication in our nation is a major health issue. It is a spiritual issue. Or perhaps financial needs tempt you, so you're tempted to maybe cut corners, take a little bit more than you should, and on and on the physical felt pains of temptation cause us to doubt the goodness and the provision and the timing of God. Beloved, do not let Satan tempt you to doubt that God is good and faithful today. We're going to talk about later what to do if you've succumbed to this temptation, but don't let him cause you to doubt God's goodness. It's a trick as old as time. Learn from Jesus who responds with confidence, faith in God's timing and in his provision. Number two, Number two, words in the wilderness, verses 5 through 7. We, mo- we move through the first test, and now on to the second. Jesus answers Satan's temptation with Scripture. He talks theology. Guess what? Satan loves to talk theology, too. He happily complies this time. Satan knows the Bible. He's read it cover to cover more times than you have. And now he uses that Bible from Psalm 91 to manipulate and tempt Jesus. Verse 5 says Jesus is transported probably in a vision or a dream. Uh, it's possible that he was teleported, I suppose, or, or phased in there. We, we don't know. The text doesn't say, it just says Satan took him. I'm going to guess this is probably in some sort of visionary experience to the, to the pinnacle of the holy city, to the top of the temple, to Jerusalem. And he says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Cast yourself down. Then he quotes Psalm 91, 11, and 12 out of context. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. I find it fascinating the rest of that passage. Scripture's always taken out of context. Remember Nick said in a, few, a few weeks ago in his sermon, if you're ever curious as to what a passage of Scripture means, just keep reading. Uh, this would uh, Notice Satan doesn't doesn't quote verse 13, uh, you will tread on the lion and the adder, (laughs) the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Fascinating. He doesn't keep going. Context serves us well. He says, cast yourself down if you are the son of God. He will command his angels concerning you. Again, this is a mirror of the temptation in the garden of Eden. Remember what he told Eve? You will not surely die. God tells him, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Satan casts doubt. You're not really going to die, Eve. And now he's telling Jesus the same thing. Throw yourself down, Jesus. You're not going to die. I mean, God said he's not even going to let you strike your foot against a stone. You won't even stub your toe, Jesus. Throw yourself down. Let go. Let's go. Show yourself as the son of God. And we hear the echo of Eden. You will not surely die. What's happening here? Satan is casting doubt on the penalty of sin. He is casting doubt on the penalty of sin. Part of the temptation of sin is that it often hides the true cost of a penalty. It often hides the true cost of that it brings. God says the wages of sin is death. Satan says, is it really, though? Try it. See. Nothing's going to happen. It's not that bad. Is it really that bad? I mean, God's gracious and forgiving, right? He's merciful. He'll forgive you if you ask him. Just try. You can stop anytime you want. He'll take you back. And so Satan presents the wages of sin is maybe death. He's casting doubt on the penalty of sin. Jesus responds again from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Beloved, there is a world of difference, hear this, between testing God and trusting God. Those are not the same things. They are massively different categorically between testing God and trusting God. Trusting God says, God, your word says your way is better. I'm going to trust you. I don't need to find out by experience. I don't need to test it. I'm going to trust you that your way is better. Testing God says this. I know what your word says, but I'm going to try this anyways. That's testing God. Beloved, trust God. Take him at his word. Don't test him when he forbids something. Don't try to find ways to justify it. Rather, take God at his word. Trust him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, Proverbs 3 says. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. So let me ask you, are there areas in your life today that you are testing God or engaging actions that God forbids. Beloved, don't test him. Trust him. When he says flee temptation, flee it. Don't stick around to see how bad it really is. Number three. We move on to that set from that test to number three. Worship in the wilderness. So we had warfare in the wilderness, number one. Number two, words in the wilderness. Number three, that's the words, of scriptures in the wilderness. Number three, worship in the wilderness, verse 8 through 11. We come to the final tests in this section. This is a a very potent test. Satan, it says he takes Jesus up onto a very high mountain, verse 8, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Shows it all to him. And he says, I'm going to give you all of these if you would just fall down and worship me. Very simple. Just just prostrate yourself in an act of worship to me. I'm going to give it all to you. This is a very potent and powerful appeal. Matthew places it at the end. Luke places it at the middle for a reason, for Luke's own reasons, which we'll talk about later. But Matthew places it at the end As a climax. It's a climax because it's very powerful. You say, why is this one so powerful? You have to realize that God promised Messiah that he would inherit the nations. That the nations would be his inheritance. That he would rule over all the earth. That the world would be his and his glory would would all belong to him. But first, the cross. But first, the suffering servant of Isaiah. But first, death for sin. This is what was promised in the plan of God. And now Satan offers a different way. Satan says, no need all the pain. You can get all of it without the cross. I'll give you the crown without the cross. It's a palpable, heavy, temptation for the son this temptation casts doubt on the plan and purpose of god it throws shade if you will on god's wisdom and you can see jesus wrestles with this again in the garden doesn't he god if there's another way is there another way let the cup pass he's sweating drops of blood he knows what it means the wrath of the father and what it will mean for him so Satan says, I'll show you a better way. I'll show you a better way. I'll give it to you without any other pain. He is throwing doubt on the goodness of God's purpose, his plan, and his wisdom. This is the same temptation he held out to Adam and Eve, isn't it? Remember? God knows the day you eat of it, you will, sh- you will not surely die. The day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. You have to recall what was at stake there was the throne. Satan offered Adam and Eve the throne. You don't have to rule under God. You can be God. That's why the penalty was so harsh for Adam and Eve. And now he offers Jesus the very same thing. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. Take the throne, Jesus. Just worship me. Same temptation. Adam and Eve took and they ate. Jesus, what does he do? What does he say? I love what he says. Read it. What does he say to Satan? Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. I'm done with you. Beat it. Be gone, Satan. And then he, da- he quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve beloved sometimes this is how you got to handle temptation be gone get lost beat it get out of here this response tells us a few things because satan leaves doesn't he it says satan leaves and then the angels came and were ministering to jesus no doubt this weakened him further even the son needed the help of angels do you not think you need the help of the church and ministers of God after temptation? Oof. This response tells us some things, though. Jesus could have done this at the beginning, couldn't he? He said, be gone, and Satan leaves. There was a purpose in this testing, and that purpose had been fulfilled, and once that purpose was fulfilled, Satan is dispensed with. He never had a chance. How frustrating it must be for him he never had a chance. And so Jesus, with that, is victorious. The first Adam failed the test. Jesus faced the temptations in a far greater measure, and he was victorious, the victor, and demonstrated his obedience as the beloved son, and his obedience grants him the right to give life to all who believe and follow him. Praise God. Hallelujah. The first Adam failed. Jesus succeeded. This is also a foreshadowing. This is what you would call in a narrative. This is a story. This is foreshadowing because Jesus isn't done, is he? The cross hasn't happened yet. This is a foreshadowing. Jesus still has another temptation to go, doesn't he? A final one, a greater one, where he will wrestle in the garden, not with Satan per se. He's going to wrestle with the Father will I be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? And there he will be in a garden, the garden of Gethsemane. But now he has demonstrated that obedience, and this obedience will grant him the the right to give life to all who follow him, to give blessing and life. One of the hardest realities of sin is that it impacts those around you. It impacts you and it impacts those around you. One of the sweetest impacts of the obedience of Christ is that it impacts all around him who trust in him. Romans 5, 19, here's how Paul describes it. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It's justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Through the obedience of Christ, many Will be made righteous. Hebrews four puts it like this: Hebrews four fifteen to sixteen. Here's the re- here's one of the results of the successful victory of Christ over temptation. Here's what he says: For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he's without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me ask you, where are you tempted? Where have you stumbled? Beloved, Jesus sympathizes with your weakness. And he is able to give you grace and mercy to help in time of need if you draw near to him. Let's close out this time with some practical applications. So first, we're going to walk through Satan's tactics. We have four points there, as we're just going to see how Satan worked with Jesus, with his temptation, because it's often how he works with us. So we're going to see four areas of how Satan tempts us, and then we're going to see three solutions to overcome temptation in your life, all right? From the scriptures, three solutions that God gives us to fight Temptation and overcome it in our lives for the glory of God. So let's start with Satan's tactics so we can kind of know his ways. As Paul says, we are not ignorant of his schemes, all right? We are not ignorant of his schemes. These all come uh, pretty much right out of the text. The first one comes from the first test and the second test. Here's tactic number one Satan taunts. He taunts. They all start with T. He taunts. If you are the Son of God or Since you're the son of God, he taunts with his identity. Here's how he does it with you. If you're you're a Christian, how could you do that? Or this is probably more internal dialogue. If I'm a Christian, if I'm really a Christian, how could I do this? Or are you really sure you're God's child? Look how many times you messed up. You already messed up once. What's one more? Or again? He taunts if you're God's child. That's the first one. He he taunts your identity. How could you do this as a blank member of Kahului Baptist Church? As a father. Oh, you're, you're a supervisor in your workplace. How could you do this? Oh, you're a deacon, a pastor, a missionary how could you do this? He taunts you with your identity. Second one, he twists God's word. He twists God's word. He misuses scripture. This is as old as time. Did God really say? Temptations to sin often start with scripture. D- is this really what it means? Is that really forbidden in scripture? I'm going I'm to recheck this he takes it out of context. Or sometimes he'll use scripture, a true statement used at the wrong time or in the wrong way, misapplied scripture. Beloved, Satan loves to talk theology. He really does. This is a temptation for those in in our type of church where I really try to get into the word and get us like really in there and get texts and make connections and really study and encourage that. This is a temptation for for us. This is a temptation for those who would be in maybe what's called a reform camp. Man, just Satan loves to talk theology. He does. He'll talk it all day long, but he hates it when you live it. Living it's different. And there are many in the church who are very content to talk theology But to live it, to express it, to display that faith. It's a different story. Satan loves to talk theology, he twists God's word or he misuses scripture. Number three, he taints the promises of God tactic number three. He taints the promises of God. He tries to show you that God's way really isn't the best way. That you can have God's promises without death to self. Please recall, Jesus also said, if anybody would come after me, let him take up his what? His cross. That's saying, come and die and follow me. Let me ask you this. Is there a decision in your life that you have ever made for the glory of God alone that felt like death? that felt like death Satan offers you the promises of God without the pain of the cross He taints he taints God's wisdom and God's promise Number 4 He tests God he tempts you to test God instead of trust him As we said these are vastly different concepts Satan encourages God's people to test and manipulate God rather than trust him and take him at his word. Trust God and you will find him faithful. Test him and you will find him wrathful. Think about that. Is there a room for in your theology for a wrathful God? Paul says in Romans, Behold the kindness of God. We like that part. Behold the kindness of God, but he also says, behold the severity of God. He is severe. Test him and you will find him wrathful. Trust him and you will find him faithful. That's our four ways we could say more. We'll move on to the three ways to fight temptation in our life. I'm going to give you three uh, distinct tools that the scriptures give to, to fight temptation. These are these are distinct tools, and they're overlapping tools, all right? It's not just necessarily one of them. Sometimes one will be enough. Sometimes you'll need two and three, all right? At some point in your Christian life, you will need to use all three of them, and then some. This isn't every tool. These are three main tools, broad categories, all right? Here's tool number one. Tool number one, amputation. Amputation. Matthew 5.30 this is now next chapter, getting into Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus' Sermon. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members and that your whole body go into hell. Amputation. Now, this is a figure of speech. We, we don't really want people to cut off. Please don't leave here and, and cut off an appendage, all right? Um, this is a figure of speech to take radical amputating measures against your sin. Often, just amputating sin will many times kill it. All right? I have a, um, what's the tree in my yard? Lynn? It's, I'm drawing a blank. Nope, not the kukui one, the other one. Flower. Plumeria, thank you. Uh, <laughs> drawing a blank, right? Uh, the, that tree, I, I have this plumeria tree, and, and I went and, and cut it, trimmed it, and, and they thought I killed it. I thought I killed it. <laughs> uh, the whole thing was just cut from the top. Now, there are some trees that that is enough to kill it. It'll kill it all the way down to the root. You cut it off like I did to that tree, they rely on the leaves for, to get sun and nutrition and various things that if you just cut it off like that, it'll die. The plumeria tree came back to life. It's a fighter, right? It's good. But, but there are some trees that if you just amputate it, that's enough to kill it. There are some sin that if you amputate it, you take radical measures, you cut off access, you take these measures, you will have victory. Amputation. But sometimes the roots are deeper. And amputation doesn't deal with this desire for sin in some cases. So some cases it might be like a banana tree. You cut off one and you don't get that root system. It's just going to keep sprouting them up. Sometimes amputation isn't enough. You must go deeper. For this, you need the next tool, mortification. Amputation's one. The next two would be mortification. Romans chapter 8 verse 13 says this: If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit, here it is, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is actually the massive ethical implication from Matthew 4 that we're supposed to take away. This the baptism of Jesus shows the Spirit rests on Jesus throughout the wilderness trial. The point for us today to take away from this passage is that the Spirit in Jesus is what allowed him to have victory over his temptations, the result of walking in the Spirit. So we could say Jesus led the Spirit filled spirit guided life and the power of the holy spirit on him kept him from yielding to temptation strengthened him to fight temptation and sustained him through the temptation all the way to the end victoriously jesus lived the spirit filled life and he walked in step with that spirit so paul sees this and says if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh in the body you will live that's where this word mortify comes from, put to death. You mortify the deeds of the body. Now hear me, There's no pa- this is not a passive leading of the Spirit, right? Like the Spirit's in you, so it's just going to lead me to fight sin. No, this is an energizing and animating power. Jesus actively followed the Spirit. He used the sword of the Spirit, the, the very Word of God, and all of his answers to Satan, he quotes scripture, the foundational one, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Sometimes people get concerned that if they read or, or study the Bible too much that they'll get too heady, right? They'll get too heady, you know, knowledge puffs up kind of thing. That's always something to be aware of, but, but the danger is that they may think, I just want to be, to be filled with the Spirit." I just want the, the Spirit to fill me and to, to lead me. And so they'll maybe do less Bible reading or, or less Bible study and, and more prayer and more singing and more other practices that, that maybe make them feel more, more spiritual. And, and these aren't necessarily wrong. They're actually very good. But sometimes what can happen in the process is, is we miss the testimony of God over the Scriptures. Ephesians six seventeen 17 recalls the Scriptures the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. If you want to live a a Spirit-filled life, know the Scriptures. Learn how to use them well, wisely. Study them and then live them. The sword of the Spirit has the power to transform us as we engage with it daily in our lives. So, mortification. Put to death the deeds of the body. Use the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Use the Word of God. Use prayer. Sing to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Yes, but do all of it, and you will be transformed. Mortify. Mortify your sin. Put it to death. The picture here is one of starvation. It's one of starvation. You starve temptation. That's the root down there. You starve it to death. You cut off the oxygen to it. And the way you cut off the oxygen to it is by filling it with something entirely different, the spirit, the word of God. You strangle it. You choke it out with the word of God. Mortify it. Number three, there's other tools under mortification, but we got to move on. Number three, so we had the first one, amputation. The second one, mortification. The third one, Limitation, limitation. Hebrews 12, 1. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Limitation, limitation. And these come ultimately from uh, John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin, and other applications of that. So that's the best book if you want to read on how to fight sin in your life, John Owen's book, The Mortification of Sin. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Limitation. Now, what, is, what do I mean here? The question when we talk about limitation or, or the principle here is, is not asking, is this activity that I'm doing sin? That's not the question we're asking. Right, when we think of limitation, right? The, other, the first two we are. We're amputation, we're saying, where's sin in my life? I gotta amputate it. Mortification, where's sin in my heart? I gotta mortify it. This question is not asking, is this or that sin? This question is asking, does this or that help me to run faithfully? Does this action, this thought, this external circumstance help me to run? Does it uh, lay aside any weight or hindrance to me running this race? Does it help me to run faithfully, faithfully? Does it drive me to more holiness? Or does it place me in a position where I'm surrounded with temptation? Or does it desensitize me to worldliness? That's what we're asking in Limitation. Does this desensitize me to worldliness? Does it help me run? When I moved to Oahu in 2008, uh, I had enough money, which isn't much money. (laughs) I was was quite young and and not much uh, assets in my life. I had just enough money to buy a, a decent car or a really nice bicycle to get around on. And I, I knew I wanted to ride my bike around uh, to get around, save gas, save money, that kind of thing, uh, and get an exercise in the process, right? So so I was like, okay, I can either get a really nice car or a really nice bike or a beater car, a cruiser, and a semi-okay bike. Okay, and I thought to myself, I'll get the, the cruiser car and then I'll just cruise around on my bike most of the time. But I knew, I know myself, I know there'd be days that I'm like, I'm tired today. <sighs> I think I'm going to drive. I'm not going to take the bike. I could take the bike. There's no reason for me not to take the bike, but I think I'm going to drive. And that one exception would turn into a, a weekly exception, which would turn into a monthly exception, which would turn into I'm never riding my bike. I know myself. And so I limited my choices, I self imposed limitation. I took all the money I had, poured it into the nice, not all the money, but the money all- allocated for that, and poured it into a very nice road bike. Best decision I ever made. No, marrying my wife, trusting Jesus, having children, best decisions. But you see what I mean, right? Right? Uh, one of the greatest decisions I've ever made, right? Having, just limiting my choices. Limiting my choices. I got the bike. I limited my access to an easy escape. Now I didn't have a choice in that time. If I didn't want to ride, too bad, so sad. Go stand on the side of the road, hold up your thumb, do something else. Now I must ride. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about limitation. Put yourself in places where you do not have access or even close to temptations, tempting circumstances. Limit yourself to the road of holiness, to the road of Christlikeness. That's what we're asking. Does this help me to run? The ultimate takeaway from this, it'd be wrong to leave you here saying, be like Jesus, go fight your sin. That would be wrong if that's all I said. That is part of it. Be like Jesus, fight your sin. But mainly, the message here is that Jesus, the obedient son, fought sin. He won, and he invites you and me to find life in him. So, beloved KBC, draw near to Jesus often and always, and you too can walk the spirit-filled, temptation-conquering Christian life, because Jesus gives a spirit without measure in abundance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It is sufficient to form us, to make us like Christ, to lead us toward life and godliness. We thank you, Father, for this word, this powerful sword of the Spirit. May we use it. May we walk in the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the body. May we draw near to Christ and find that there is life and blessing forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.